Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Special Friday night edition of the Dunktown Basketball Podcast. And man, am I glad that we canceled Wednesday's episode and did this game instead, Danny. This was, was awesome. Uh, but before we get into game six, that awesome John Wall buzzer beater, did I mention it was awesome, and talk about the off seasons of the Chicago Bulls and Oklahoma City Thunder, I need to mention that we are sponsored today by Harry Shave. Can get your free trial offer at harrys.com slash capspace right now and betterment. Betterment.com slash capspace can get you up to six months of no fees. Well, this game was ugly for a long time. Both teams had some massive struggle sessions, cultural revolution reference there, but it certainly ended in extremely entertaining fashion. Yeah, I mean, the en- the ending was remarkable, but I think part of the reason for I found the ending so interesting is because of how it started. I mean, in the first half, Boston led by one point despite shooting 35% from the field, and it, the Wizards were, I think they'd made two three-pointers before the fourth quarter. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, they finished five out of 24. They hit three in that fourth quarter. They actually went three out of four on three pointers in the fourth quarter, amazingly. But yeah, it started off Washington just kind of getting out to a small lead. I thought actually early in the first, Boston was getting better shots than Washington and just weren't making them. We saw that Washington was very aggressive, double teaming Isaiah Thomas. And as in game five, Boston was able to take advantage by sending a lot of cutters when the that person's man went to go double team the strategy was as we talked about especially when isaiah thomas on the side any pick and roll any dho they were going to trap him and then send someone over from the weak side to get the roll man and boston does a great job of moving the ball they're able to get some nice looks off of that uh get some good back cuts avery bradley had an alley-oop off of another vinable offense by john wall james harden-esque but boston had little to show for it and then washington went through about a seven minute field goal drought that bleeded into the third quarter from the the end of the second or the end of the second quarter and that allowed boston to go on a 12-0 run and actually take the lead into halftime at 42 41 something else that you and i wanted to follow for this whole game especially considering what happened in in game five when the wizards just blew so many layups was how they were going to do in the restricted area and they ended up 19 of 31 which was actually better than they were doing at the early in the game i think they were 8 of 15 early on but they just were able to cobble enough together. I mean, they were also 8 of 23 in mid-range. 
range. So, And that's not really a strength of this wizard team, so it's not all that surprising. But it goes to show kind of what, what sort of game this was. Yeah, and the Wizards were so much more effective attacking the rim in the second half, I thought, just in terms of their efficiency, going 11 out of 16 at the rim in the second half. They didn't really kill Boston on the offensive glass at all as they had in some of their other wins but they did manage to score very efficiently in the second half although a lot of that was late in the fourth quarter uh they scored 51 points on 43 possessions so 119 offensive rating in the second half and boston had 49 on 44 so they were it was an offensive game in the second half after both teams were under 90 offensive rating in the first half john wall had a nightmare first half he was one out of nine but then stuck with it he did have six assists in the first half and then it seemed like he just tried to attack the rim harder especially in transition and his second half numbers were much better he shot eight out of 16 in the second half got to the foul line more as well but only had two assists in the second half so again he was really trying to attack and they're doing a good job of playing his pick and rolls two on two especially in the second quarter the combination of Bradley and Horford were excellent and also was Martian Gortat got his third foul on a cheapie in the second quarter that that not coincidentally coincided with that awful wizard drought because nobody else was setting good enough screens Gortat was a great screener and he made that as we'll get into the play-by-play in the fourth he made his presence known in particular in the fourth quarter but without him Wall really just couldn't get Avery Bradley off of him. Yeah, despite missing time due to foul trouble in this game, Gortat almost had half of the Wizards' screen assists. And another important part of this game was actually in transition. So a definitive stretch for Boston in the third quarter was they just kept on getting runouts. They they got, I think it was three in like five possessions on the Wizards, including one on a made basket. It was, I think it was a John Wall layup. It was Wall or Beal. And then, so they had eight fast break points in the third quarter alone. Washington had three three total in the first three quarters then got five in the fourth and Boston had zero yeah and John Wall started really pushing it hard more often getting to the rim and actually finishing I think we in a couple of games we've seen that where he was not able to finish at the rim in the first half and then was more effective in the second now uh, Bradley Beal had a wonderful game he had 33 points 15 out of 26 from the field he played 43 minutes wall was at 42 but I thought another key stretch was when wall just sat for a two minute stretch in the beginning of the fourth quarter in the terrible Brandon Jennings minutes the Wizards actually outscored the Celtics four to zero when they had Thomas on the floor and then I like that Scott Brooks he wasn't like oh I'm gonna push my luck with Jennings out here it was more like thank God we got it with a a 4-0 stretch I'm gonna get Wall back in right now before this turns bad on me it was a great decision and and it avoided a trap that so many coaches fall into just of relying on the people who got you to that moment instead of instead of actually who your good players are and it was good to see and it helped set up you know Washington had they had the lead for almost the entire first quarter and then it looked kind of like Boston was going to take control at the end of the third and then I was wrong again I always I've been getting this series wrong in game a lot it's been one of the perks of the Twitter NBA show is me predicting the ins and outs and getting them wrong in this series I know that's why I keep asking you although I've of course have been no better yeah this series like other series I'm usually decent at it but this one it's consistently had 
had those effects. And I mean, the beginning of that fourth quarter, as you said, was an important one because the Wizards bench has struggled so much. And I feel like before we get to the fourth quarter stuff, something else we have to talk about is Otto Porter was a ghost in this game. Yeah, he was 0 for 5, 0 points. He did oddly have three offensive rebounds, but uh, wasn't able to convert any of those. Didn't get to the foul line at all. And, And this is the type of game that just gives you pause about Porter because he can be efficient sometimes when other people are setting him up or he can get out in transition or someone he's getting a wide open three because the other team can't guard John Wall in a pick and roll but man I mean it's just he cannot create his own offense at all they did in fact go to him a little in the post in game four when they tried to hide Isaiah on him this game Isaiah was guarding Beal most of the time and that was responsible in large part for the fact that that Beal was so effective and that Wall struggled throughout a lot because they had Avery Bradley on Wall and then late after Otto Otto Porter hadn't been shooting at all they're like all right we're gonna put Isaiah Thomas on him because he hasn't done anything they're not gonna go post him up in the last five minutes of the game and go away from Wall and Beal so they put Smart onto Beal and I thought those guys did a pretty good job but Wall and Beal were able to do just enough obviously to get the win and Boston's bench also struggled mightily they combined for two of 15 shooting and a mere five points smart played 28 minutes only was able to get up three shots didn't hit any of them he was one or two from the foul line Jalen Brown had a bunch of open shots in the first half and just couldn't hit any of them he was 0 for 5 uh, although he was did finish plus one I thought he actually played reasonably well uh and then Kelly Olenek does some stuff offensively at times but he really got taken advantage advantage of defensively they went to more two big looks with he and Horford and I didn't think that those were very effective defensively in large part due to Olenek's limitations and Olenek also got called for for four fouls and I think it could have even been more than that in just 21 minutes yeah that was a big problem was his fouling his inability to have any effect on guys in in the pick and roll I mean you always see what happens to him is he gets up too high gets blown by for a layup and then he stays back and he lacks the length to really contest anybody in mid-range and Wall, Beal, those guys were able to be very effective, especially because Isaiah Thomas is not really going to affect Beal's shot in the mid-range either. And Beal, though he was one of eight on three-pointers, though he hit a huge one late, uh, that left him at... 14 out of 18 on two-pointers and most of those were from mid-range or floater range one play in particular i don't think it's in the part that we're going to break down but i think it was a little earlier in the fourth quarter isaiah was i think he was on beal and they got him switched onto wall and then they brought up a linux man to to on the pick and roll just saying they're going oh this is going to be a bucket and i think it ended up being a bradley beal bradley beal got an open three and then which he missed but then they got an offensive rebound or something like that but it was like you you knew something good was going to come from it just because putting those two guys in the action is a problem avery bradley's great night it deserves some notice team high 42 minutes guarded john wall into 9 of 25 shooting and then was 10 of 18 three of six on threes himself four steals 27 points i mean just you could make the argument that he was actually the best player on the floor tonight although you know his limitations creating offense are difficult but he was able to make some big shots i mean the uh coming off of screens and then as a spot up guy also just his timely cutting his his work in transition was outstanding and uh, Al Horford also was fantastic with 20 points 8 of 12 from the field wasn't able to get quite as many assists in this one though and, and Horford continues his red hot three-point shooting it was two for four today should we talk about just the very end of the game like the last two minutes now or is there anything else you wanted to add on uh, the meat of this game there's one thing I want to add on the meat but I want to wait until the very end because 
because it connects with the very end of the game. So we'll start off with Boston went much more to Isaiah Thomas in the second half, and he delivered it in large part, although he didn't shoot that well himself. He was eight out of 24, but got up a, a lot more threes, five out of 13 on three pointers. So he managed 27 points on 27 shooting possessions with seven assists, despite the fact that he went eight out of 24. But his five turnovers were pretty killer. It did look like, though, he was going to ice this game out because he put him up five with two big plays. First, they ran a 1-4 pick and roll. He got switched on to Markeith Morris, who had guarded him okay on a switch earlier in the game, but he had a sweet step back, created tons of separation. Pretty decent shot for him at at that point in the game to put him up two. Then Wall took a a tough pull-up J from the elbow uh, on Al Horford, who is uh, in pick and roll defense on him, missed that. And then the second time, they're like, all right, we're not going to switch this this time because Thomas just scored on Morris. We're going to avoid switching if we can avoid it. And Crowder again screened for Thomas, rescreened, got Thomas going to his right. Wald tried to go over the screen, got caught against both Morris and Crowder. And then Thomas was able to hit a, still a pretty tough three with Wall contesting to put them up by five. Uh, and then after the next possession, so so Scott Brooks at that point took a timeout and you and I both didn't like that timeout because it let Boston get all their defensive guys in the game and take Thomas out. Boston, because they still had a lot of timeouts themselves, they had the ability to kind of do the offense part of offense defense, but they needed some help to get the defense part in because the Wizards, you know, otherwise there wouldn't have been a stoppage. And it led to this wild play where, I mean, there are a lot of parts of the process that I didn't like, but so they got a switch with Wall on on, on Horford or with, with Horford on Wall's more accurate way to put it. And Wall was driving and I mean, it was pretty clear what was going on. He was going to drive for a layup and they were, they were down five. So, I mean, that would have only put them, that would have only put them down down three if he had made it and he missed a lot of layups and Marcus Smart recognized it to his full credit jumped and got into position you and I have a disagreement on whether he moved after he was in position but the referees immediately called a blocking foul and what bothered me first of all I thought his shoulder moved in and that initiated the contact that's why it was opposed to it his feet were set that wasn't a problem but they reviewed the call on the basis of whether or not he was in the charge circle which the presumption then is okay well it's a legitimate it's a legitimate charge if he's outside the line and because that's all they can review so that's actually not quite accurate because this is what the rule book says on that they can review it when they are not reasonably certain as to whether the defender was inside or outside of the restricted area so that is the trigger if the guy is close enough but the rule says the call is deemed a block if the referees deem the defender was one not in a legal guarding position that basically is committing a blocking foul or two in a legal guarding position but inside the restricted area and then the call is deemed a charge if the defender was in a legal guarding position and outside the restricted area so that's the trigger but they can also make the decision on whether or not the guy was in a legal guarding position so they don't have to have called a blocking foul based on the fact that he was in the restricted area to trigger a review you could just do it if you're not sure whether he was in the restricted area or not. Uh, so, and on that basis, they found looking at the replay that he was in a legal guarding position. I actually agreed with that. I thought it was one of the better charges that you're going to see. Like he did take a little step with his foot. And so live, I thought actually, because we didn't have the angle directly behind it. Live, I actually thought that it was going to be a block, but then he took a step with his foot, but I didn't think that really his torso moved at all. I guess we we disagree on that. But I uh, 
I don't mind doing that. I mean, I just hate the fact that that is a charge. And I think that the charge circle should be moved out. And lo and behold, John Wall came down on his wrist. And, uh, you know, he obviously has always taken these falls on his wrists, which are very dangerous. And he broke his wrist on a play like that in the 2015 playoffs. But as the rule is written, I believe that the correct call was made. And I, I thought the refs did a good job in that. It's just, you know, the rule sucks. I will also note that he was a mile, he was a mile outside of the charge circle. So it is a little bit, I mean, it's possible the ref was legitimately unsure, but it didn't seem like that was the question on the call. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I, I don't mind that they reviewed it in that situation though. But, uh, so at that point, Washington had just taken a timeout. There's a stoppage, so Boston can get their their offensive players back in. There's about a minute 20 left, and Boston up five with the ball with a minute 20 left. You think, all right, we can run it down under a minute here. Worst case scenario, we're up five with a minute left. We're in a dominant position. And then the key play, and while you and I criticized the Scott Brooks timeout because it lessened their chance of scoring, he did make a key strategic change in that timeout after after they'd gotten burned on that Thomas uh, 1-4 pick and roll, first he put uh, Markeith Morris on Marcus Smart. And so that meant that they had Marcus Smart go and screen for Isaiah. And so they went back to the hard trap way out at half court and Isaiah got caught in the air and Otto Porter came up to take away the roll man. So Isaiah just had to kind of uh, barf up a pass and it got picked off. And so they didn't run down any time. And now they're in a transition situation. Beal got it, got the pass. And then Gortat with a fantastic screen in transition that Beal was able to just dribble behind and pull a three. And for a guy who was at that point, oh, for seven on threes, pretty big time to get his first make of the game from downtown and it wasn't appropriate even though he hadn't been making his threes because Beal had had an absolutely fabulous game to that point he was he ended the game 15 to 26 from the field so at that point he was 14 of 25 and had just been killing it on twos and so he got to have a a big moment in this game where he was really what helped keep them alive during the first three quarters so then Boston did a better job of running it down till Isaiah got the ball with a live dribble basically on the slot on the right side against wall after uh coming up from the baseline and isaiah actually waved the screen away and i think the reason that he did that was because he was scared that they were going to trap him again and he wanted to take the shot but then if you're going to do that he's got john wall on him who's got you know a five inch height advantage he's got to like back up and then go at him with a crossover or something instead he just held it and just tried to shoot over john wall and got it blocked which was a uh, kind of a disaster and then Al Horford made a really dumb play. This is uh, always kills me when guys do this. this is like maybe the lowest percentage play in basketball. The big man who doesn't get the offensive rebound, then just jumping up and down and trying to deflect the outlet pass like three or four times instead of just sprinting back immediately. So Gortat throws it to Wall. Now Horford, their only guy who can protect the rim at all, is way behind the play. And Wall just goes right in and gets fouled because Horford was behind the play the whole time because he went for, you know, a one out of a hundred steal feeling like oh he's like trying real hard to, to uh instead of just getting back and it was really that was a bad play but nice job of course by wall who, who is uh one of the best in transition and then uh he made two ice free throws to tie it up so then Avery Bradley, they sent him off an Al Horford screen from the free throw line area to the left baseline. They're inbounding on the left sideline, got him wide open. Horford with a good, probably illegal, screen, getting his forearm outside the cone of his body, freeing 
Avery Bradley from Bradley Beal and Bradley was wide open there was only 41 seconds left so it was a little early from two for one standpoint but Stevens likes to have at least an option on an out-of-bounds play to get a shot immediately and you can't complain about that he made the shot put him up too but then uh, another small Boston error turned into a huge thing as you noted in real time on the Twitter NBA show I started going ballistic because it was 39 it was about yeah about 39 seconds at that point and Washington rolls the ball and they're just basically letting it go and it was I'm, over I'm, half court by the over time half court. they made I, him I'm, pick it up I'm running through the timing in my head and I'm going you're letting them get a two for one on you and remember Boston has a two-point lead at this point so if you f- pressure the ball if you force them to pick it up and they miss that shot first of all they're going to foul you and then you have a really good chance of winning but second of all like you're giving them an extra out and so I was just I was going I'm like why aren't they why aren't they stopping this especially because Avery Bradley had been so good on ball pressure for a lot of this game and then it ended up really mattering because they got a, a off a of, off a of pin down for Bradley Beal. They ended up getting a, a, I think it was kind of would you call it a runner or a mid range shot? Either way, well, it, it started off with Gortat setting setting a wide pin down Washington. A lot of their offenses bringing ba- Bradley Beal out of the corner with a wide pin down, and Gortat set a great screen that forced Kelly Olynyk to come out and switch on to Beal, and Beal just went right at him and, and got the floater. And that was another they'd gotten with Olynyk to get more offense on the floor for the previous possession but then because scott brooks didn't take a timeout they weren't able to get a linic or thomas for that matter off the floor and so beal was able to tie the game and then of course they had i think a seven second differential which uh ended up being key even after uh boston was able to score right and then boston actually went down offensively and they were actually stalling out it felt like it was about nine seconds left stevens called a timeout even though they already had their offensive personnel on the floor just because nothing was really happening and they they ended up getting you know i i it, it, it's hard to it's hard to say how that look was because of how the shot went in but they got a, an open mid-range shot for al horford and he made a banker but he also maybe got fouled on the play yeah the setup was again a nice one from brad stevens kelly Olynyk was the inbounder they inbounded it to al horford at the elbow then isaiah thomas set a back screen for Olynyk that forced a little bit of help on Olynyk horford of course a great passer and then that freed up Thomas to come off the DHO from Horford get into the middle of the lane Gortat had to help on him and then that left Horford open on kind of the the pick and pop roll to the baseline and John Wall did a nice job of veering back onto Horford after Thomas was forced to pass it and contesting but again he may have committed the foul but that's a good shot for Al Horford he's you know one of the best mid-range shooting big men of all time uh when he's got enough time and space to get his shot off so Scott Brooks got the timeout after that and I think John Wall you know I'm not sure if the initial play was for a a three but they tried to go with Gortat screening for Bradley Beal to bring him to the top of the circle from the weak side and Marcus Smart just went right through that screen blew it up he is just impossible to screen most of the time and so instead they had to bring Wall up out of the corner basically hand the ball off almost in bounds you can't literally hand it off because that's a violation but then Wall was just one-on-one guarded by Bradley Bradley backed off just a little bit too much and I think defensively in that situation I'm the number one thing I'm thinking is no threes 
uh and bradley for all of his tools does not have amazing length he's not a guy like again he didn't have like that crazy ball pressure that he normally does because in part there wasn't a screen there right like usually you pressure up and that's what enables him to wriggle over the screen there wasn't a screen and so wall just pulled it right in his eye and hit uh probably the biggest shot in washington basketball history since 1979 yeah since they were the bullets and a huge shot and i was trying to find the the play in the back of my head that i was thinking of and I figured it out on the drive home. It was Giannis not feeling comfortable taking a three and then driving into the paint and having nothing to do. It was in, I think, like game two or something of that series. Maybe it was game three. And Wall, you know, he identified the situation that there were no good options, took the best option on the on the floor and then just drilled the shot. A career about 32% three-point shooter just, just nailed it. Yeah, and John, I mean, this is he said it after the game. I really enjoyed his interview saying like, yeah, this is it. This is what I live for. And for a guy, who has gone through all this crap of like you know uh, the criticism from Colin Coward about him dancing and losing his shoe deal and not being able to get a better one which he thought he deserved and constantly being overshadowed by he would say lesser players in the Eastern Conference all-star voting he wants to be a big star and finally you know especially after he started off so poorly it was able to live up to that billing with that shot but we weren't quite done yet uh, because Brad Stevens again really good on the out-of-bounds plays but it's not even that he's really good on the out-of-bounds plays it's that he actually like gets his players to run through all of the options for real right like you know a lot of times you'll see like there's a set called UCLA for example right that always starts off with the point guard passing it to the wing and then getting a back screen from the elbow and 95% of the time the teams run that set, the point guard just kind of jogs through and the guy doesn't really screen at the elbow. It's just like, you know, it's like, oh, this is just a dummy thing. We're just doing this so we can get to the rest of the play. Steven's teams don't do that in large part. And so, for example the main action was Isaiah Thomas running out of the backcourt for a screen to try to get the ball on the move with uh, 3.2 seconds left. And then on the other side, it was Kelly Olenek screening to bring Jay Crowder towards the ball along the baseline. And they went with Kelly Oubre so they could switch everything. I don't know if Steven said this beforehand or whether that's just something that Olenek is trained for, but Olenek, after setting the screen, you've got the guy on your back. They set it so he's setting the screen just right under the basket. And so Olenek, then just turns and posts up right under the basket Al Horford a great passer sees it lofted it to him and Kelly Oubre was lucky that he committed the foul because it had turned out the Wizards had a foul to give but then some weird timing issues occurred after that right so we were wondering at the time beyond realizing at then then that they had that foul to give how it worked out that they burned I think it was 1.3 or 1.5 on the clock on a foul that occurred might have occurred like basically on the catcher before the catch and they never reviewed it they never looked at it and it was just it was just bizarre and they just you know went on tried it again and then they only had uh one was 1.7 i believe went for it again and they didn't get nearly as good a look the second time around yeah that's right and they ran the exact same play but that time they got it into thomas and marquise morris did a nice job uh, of contesting him on, on a switch but it, and it was a tough fade away from 27 feet going to his left that didn't have much of a chance 
chance. So now we go to game seven in this series. Uh, we can talk more about that on Sunday night because it's not until Monday. But I want to bring up one more point. So this is yes. what I wanted to tie back into. So obviously there are bad calls that go a lot of different directions over the course of a game. And you never want to say, oh, well, if this happened, unless it's a, like, you know, a clearly wrong call and there's I'd set a point in no return. However, Boston had two really weird calls go against them in this game. One was that one where it looked like the timing was off. The second was far, far earlier in the game, but involving the same player, which was Kelly Oubre. Oubre clearly tipped a ball in while it was still in the cylinder, but because of the NBA rules and because they don't have like an overseer official, they never took those points off the board because that's just not the way the, the way the officiating works in that point. Those two points ended up mattering a lot too. Yeah, there's no reason because, you know, for example, like when they're testing to see whether it's a two or a three, unless it's in the, the last few minutes of the game, they just like look at it during the next timeout and just add a point or not add a point. That should be the same rule with goaltending, right? I think on now, if the, if you call the goaltending, you can't really do that, obviously, because, you know, you don't know whether the shot was going to go in. But on plays where goaltending isn't called, they should be able to because to just go back and look at it, at least in terms of offensive goaltending and just either take the point off or not because you can get it right. Uh, and it would be too difficult to do that with defensive goaltending because the ball is getting blocked and then like stuff is happening after that. But offensive goaltending where a shot actually goes in, you can always just go back it and look at it. Now, I hate the offensive goaltending rule. I think that you that should just be legal. Like if you can get into position to just like poke the ball down on offense, like why not be able to do that? Uh, I mean, that's a different story than for defense, I think. So that would be my conception of what I'd like to see is just you're allowed to offensive goaltend whenever you want. But that's uh if you're gonna have the rule in place you might as well be able to review that during a timeout and they would have clearly taken it away because he i mean it was obvious live i was like oh maybe it's not because it's it was one of those things where it's like it's so obvious and they didn't call it where it's like okay maybe he just like didn't actually touch it and we just couldn't see from that angle but uh nah sure looked like he goaltended he hit it with both hands when the ball was already in the cylinder and like basically you know nine tenths of the way down too it was just like an asinine play by him and that isn't to say oh the celtics got robbed by the refs or anything like that that were dubious calls either way but those both were important and it just kind of ties in with the idea that the nba has stru some structures in place to correct things but they don't have a perfect and they can still keep working all right, we got to talk a little Golden State and San Antonio now that we know that matchup. But first, this from Harry's. Like so many advertisers on our show, Harry's is a disruptor of an industry that frankly needs it. One big razor company has relentlessly increased prices and... It's at the point now where those blades are so expensive that if you try to buy one at the drugstore, you need like a code to get into this and key to get into the box. It's like two dudes have to turn the key simultaneously like they're on a nuclear missile sub to even get you these razors because god forbid someone were to steal one of these things because they're so incredibly expensive harry's believes that that's ridiculous they're just two dollars a blade compared to the four dollars or more that you will pay at the drugstore they take less profit and they sell directly to you over the internet that's how they sell their blades at half the price they actually bought a factory in Germany to manufacture the blades, and they are so confident you will love them that they are giving you their trial set for free. All you got to do is cover the $3 shipping. So your free set includes a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade as well. I really like the... 
the razor one of the things i like about it is uh it's got really good wash through which is an industry term when you run it under the faucet it gets all the shaving cream and, and cut whiskers out of there quickly so you can actually get done with your shave faster you also get a rich lathering shave gel a travel blade cover and that's a 13 dollar value for you to try so you can stop messing around get started shaving with harry's today by claiming your free trial offer a 13 dollar value for free you just cover the shipping for three bucks the way you do that is a URL, harrys.com slash capspace. Capspace, easy to remember. We talk about it all the time in the program. That's harrys.com slash capspace to claim your free trial set. All right, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we've been talking about this kind of all year and, and we almost were talking about it like all last year too. But I know you recorded on this today for Locked On Warriors, but what do you want to say here about uh, San Antonio and Golden State? Assu- and we'll assume that Kawhi Leonard is healthy and going to play in game one uh on uh sunday at 12 30 pacific time some of the same basic keys that we thought were going to be the case in rocket spurs of can the spurs stay big can the warriors now make pal gasol defend in space and then another big one is the first two teams the warriors faced in the playoffs were not great at forcing turnovers it's just not their priority defensively both were bottom five in turnovers in the regular season and so the warriors looked great in that and san antonio they're i think around 10 that will be a larger challenge because you know, San Antonio is much better at that. One of the things I'm really going to look for for Golden State is can they get the little BS buckets where you don't even have to do anything, right? Where you just go back door and you throw it to a guy and he's open and you didn't even have to beat your man. You didn't have to set a great screen or anything. We've talked a lot about how San Antonio loves to deny the ball on the wings. In a game that was like one of the best regular season matchups coming in between San Antonio and Golden State last year, they both had these unbelievable records and we thought uh, Golden State maybe was faltering a little bit and San Antonio had a better point differential than them at the time and, and Golden State blew them out by 30 in that game and it was the best backdoor passing game I had ever seen like they were just throwing backdoor passes Draymond Green in particular to guys like Livingston or or Ian Clark I think played a little bit at that time stuff like all those were just absolute dimes on the money to backdoor cutters for for layups San Antonio did not face anything like that against Houston Houston it's just we're just going to run a pick and roll every time and there's some shooting around you and you know try and stop us it's James Harden it's a bunch of great shooters you know Golden State much more complexity than that there's split cuts they're going to force you to switch a ton off the ball they're going to get the ball into the post and and go back door uh if you deny them they're going to go back door they're going to have great shooters like Steph Steph Curry and Clay Thompson set back screens and then come off of those back screens or if you don't guard on those back screens and help out or switch now they've got a guy wide open because you can't leave Steph Curry like those that's going to be one of the things if the Spurs can take away like the easy I mean I don't want to call them bullshit because you know they're great at cutting and they know how to beat those plays even when it's a switch a lot of times if they can take those away I think they have at least a puncher's chance of defending this Warriors teams if they're giving up back doors you know if they give up four or five backdoor layups per game you know David West to Ian Clark on the second unit then they just got no chance of defending these guys that's a good point and I'm also going to be looking at Kawhi versus Durant we don't know if we're going to see it on both ends how, how that's really going to work but when the Warriors I don't, I'm not going to say made the decision because it was Durant's decision but when they replaced Harrison Barnes with Kevin Durant the biggest benefits to that were in two series that's against Cleveland in the finals and against the Spurs in the conference finals because now when you don't have when you have Durant out there all of a sudden what they do with Kawhi becomes substantially more important because the Warriors don't set many screens or many actions involving both Durant and 
Perry. It's just not something they've done a lot this year. So that means maybe they go back to something that Matt Moore wrote about a lot or wrote about once in a piece that a lot of people read, including me, about the idea of putting Kawhi out on an island. It's a possibility. And he can't really do that double of helping and defending his guy if his guy is Kevin Durant. I actually think that KD might be more valuable defensively in this series. I thought that KD actually did a wonderful job guarding Kawhi Leonard one-on-one. And KD just has so much length. Kawhi, not a guy who's just going to blow by you. You know, KD, every once in a while, you know, if you hit him with a hard crossover, you can beat him. Or if you're a guy who really comes off screens a thousand miles an hour, you can beat him. But Kawhi doesn't really do either of those things. What he wants to do is get to his spot, use his shoulder, and shoot over the top after he knocks the guy back. Durant, he, one, is actually weighs more and is stronger than you think he is. But number two, he can lay back enough that Kawhi can't really get his shoulder into his chest. And then if Kawhi tries to go up, Durant can contest really well. I thought, you know, Robertson, everyone talked about how good he was against Kawhi last year. I thought actually that KD did the much better job on Kawhi and now Kevin Durant can actually do that a lot of the time he presumably will be guarding him in their base alignments and you know I think actually Kawhi has done pretty well against even the likes of Andre Iguodala in some of these games he was not good in that game in San Antonio that the Warriors won pretty comfortably after they went down like 23 to 2 or whatever it was uh, and that was without Durant so we haven't really seen a Spurs Warriors matchup with Kevin Durant at full strength it was opening night and then the two games in San Antonio neither of which Durant played in and one of which, you know, Curry and Thompson and Green didn't play in either. Uh, so that's going to be big. I think that for the Spurs, Patty Mills being in the starting lineup really helps. I think now you can just go conventionally. You can either have Kawhi Leonard just completely erase Clay Thompson from the game. More likely, you're probably going to go with Kawhi guarding KD. Although you will remember that last year, Danny Green probably spent more time on KD than Kawhi did. And Kawhi spent a lot of time on Russell Westbrook, but I don't know if they'll go that way this time. Uh, And maybe Green will just take Thompson. You can play more conventionally. I think Mills is, you know, not an amazing defender on Steph Curry. He doesn't have like a ton of length, but I think he competes. He gets over screens and he's going to do a better job than Tony Parker would have. So that's going to help a little bit more for San Antonio. And the thing is, though, this whole strategy of Pau Gasol just hanging back by the rim, LaMarcus Aldridge doing that, you know, when he's playing at center, that's not going to work because with Steph Curry, you cannot give him an open off the dribble three. You have to get out higher on the floor and either trap him or switch or get up to the level of the ball. And that's going to really expose the speed disadvantage uh, that the Spurs bigs are at. But another reason I give San Antonio a little bit of hope here, and we, of course, this is all assuming Kawhi is like perfectly 100%, which he may not be. Uh, But even the reports where he could have played, but they held him out because, you know, they they had a 3-2 lead in the series. on Thursday night but the fact that San Antonio finally went small and did it to a pretty darn good degree of success gives me some more hope for them as does the fact that they're starting Mills I think that makes them much more difficult to guard and especially against with no Andre Guadalla and with Pachulia in the game I think actually San Antonio doesn't match up too terribly with Golden State's starting unit it's just really when they go to green at center that's going to be the biggest issue and so that's going to be one of the big questions to me is how often are we going to see Mike Bryant go to green at center and I would imagine it'll be quite a bit if they are at all struggling. The Warriors also have not played their key guys very many minutes. Draymond's at a little over 35. Everybody else is 34 or lower. So they ha- they have some they have some energy stored up from from these other series. And also, can the sp- 
Warriors make the Spurs bad defenders pay more than the Rockets did. I mean, there were some times where they just tore David Lee apart and a couple times with Kyle Anderson, but the Warriors personnel and the way that they run their offense is going to make it harder to keep those guys on the floor. Another potential issue is what's going to happen at the start of the second quarter. Kawhi Leonard will usually return during that time. That can be one of the Spurs best units. They have actually made a living out of putting in some of their best players earlier in the second quarter which is when other teams are usually most mostly bench players and smacking the other team during that time period. The Warriors unit without Kevin Durant or Steph Curry to start the second and fourth quarters has struggled. Kevin Durant with some of the isolation moves that he's had in the Utah series, it seems now, especially with Ian Clark in that unit, that they are kind of inching towards playing him more with that as they did at the start of the season. And I hope that they will fully embrace that as well. I think what they're going towards is actually a kind of a hybrid of the old approach and the new approach where it's going to be right. Durant and Draymond together because now you just play those guys more minutes and so you you bridge the gap by just playing them more. Yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, maybe you have a two-minute stretch now where both Katie and Steph are out of the game at the, at the start of the second. Uh, and a lot of teams try to get away with that too because you have that miserable under nine timeout that comes in after only three minutes. So if you take a guy out at the end of the first... Now you've got that first quarter, the three minutes of actual gameplay, and then another commercial. And if you can just make it there without having to call a timeout, you've now gotten them probably like 15 minutes of actual rest, only missing three minutes of game time. So that, that can be very useful. But, you know, sometimes you just get smoked during those first three minutes of the quarter. Anything else you want to say on this series? I mean, I think we've talked so much about this matchup over the years that I'm not, and we have some other stuff that we got to get to, too, Chicago and Oklahoma City. But uh, but if there's anything else that really is uh, sticking in your craw about the series, nope. what would it be? No, nope, you we have to make We have to make predictions. Okay. Uh, I think it's my turn to go first this time. Um, sure. I will go, I'm torn between Warriors 4 and Warriors 5. I'm going to predict that the Golden State Warriors will sweep the San Antonio Spurs. Wow. I'm going Warriors in 5, uh, but just because I have I, I have a lot of faith in, in the Spurs just talent like Kawhi is, is just such a monster, but the Warriors are a really tough matchup for them. They have Just like with Gordon Hayward, they have so many guys they can throw at him. I can see a sweep happening, but I'm going 5 anyway because I just think it's the most likely outcome. It's so hard to imagine the Spurs taking one of the first two games in Oakland, isn't it? Well, especially if Kawhi is not 100%, if he's like yeah, 95 or something like that. Too. And Parker being out. I mean, someone like DeJounte Murray, like John Simmons, I think, you know, the Warriors are going to do a pretty good job of not guarding him at the three-point line. Like, he doesn't look comfortable out there. I mean, I think his emergence has been great, but this is going to be such a step up in competition. I mean, the Simmons, Murray, like those guys don't have a ton of moves yet, but they're just really athletic. And so against Houston, like kind of crappy defense without athletic defenders or, or if you're being guarded by like James Harden or Ryan Anderson or that's who's protecting the rim you can just like athletic dudes like that can get confidence and just attack the rim really with abandon but against Golden State I mean that those guys are going to be facing a totally different animal just in terms of like the level of like turnover forcing and rim protection I think it's difficult for me to imagine those two guys having good offensive series uh, and I think they're really going to need them uh, what especially if Kawhi is at all uh, limited and you know we'll see and like Danny Green too right like he's had this renaissance of like being able to attack the rim off the dribble like that kind of stuff those windows close fast and there's guys who are just sharks out there if you are not an amazing dribbler against Golden State like you're gonna get ripped up all right I think that's enough on this series let's move on to the Chicago Bulls 
off-season preview. Let's just talk about overall philosophy here. We usually don't start with this, but where do you see them in the success cycle? Are they at a point where they should be going for it? Should they be trying to rebuild? Like if you were just in charge of this franchise, like what would your overall approach be right now? I don't think that going for it right now means that much for them because I just don't see how high they can get, assuming guys like Wade opt in. You know, if Wade if Wade opts in, then you're just kind of sitting there unless you're willing to trade him, which is a different conversation. So then for me, it's okay, we should focus more on a couple of years from now. You know, it doesn't even have to be that far, maybe 18, 19 or 19, 20. But then if you're doing that, if you're training your focus a little bit further out, is Jimmy Butler a central piece in that slash? Is there a price somebody else can offer for Jimmy Butler, even if you think he is that guy that would make you step away from him? Butler turns 28 before the start of next season. And although he keeps himself in phenomenal shape, does seem to have nagging injuries every once in a while. You have to, I mean, we've said this about him basically like the last two, three years that like he can't keep getting better. At 28, you'd imagine that might be pretty difficult, but you know, maybe he's got one more little leap in him. He is under contract at a pretty cheap number the next two years at basically 19 and 20 million these next two years and then he has a player option the year after that that of course was the price he extracted to re-sign as a restricted free agent he actually wanted a shorter deal but the bulls had the leverage to uh, prevent that from happening with that maximum qualifying offer where which required any other offer to be three years so he said all right we'll take take five years with a fifth year player option Now is the time to trade him if you believe that that's right. And I see no plausible way that they could build a contender around him. I mean, it's like if you could get into being a top four seed in the East, I understand keeping him around, even if you're not going to get to, if you're getting into the conference semifinals every year, even if you don't realistically have a chance to break past Cleveland, like that's worth keeping together. You know, you're still in the top quarter of the league basically at that point like that's worth keeping together and just you know all right if he leaves he leaves or maybe you're definitely not going to want to give him a designated veteran extension that's for damn sure uh even if he does happen to make enough all nba teams to qualify but he'll be going into his age 30 season when you're talking about a five-year 200 million dollar deal if he gets that no thanks and then he won't take a normal extension because that won't be enough money they won't be able to offer him enough to start with so he won't take that so it, he'll he will become a free agent in the summer of 2019 unless he makes the all nba teams but then you don't want to pay him that contract anyway so you really he's worth the most in his career over these next two years so you either just get that out of him and then maybe you move on and totally rebuild or you decide hey we're going to trade him now because i don't know that it's even realistic for them to get into being a top four team in these like i don't see how they i mean unless toronto just comes crap crashing back down but I see them even as behind like they had a worse record than the Bucks this year you know Wade and Rondo if those guys both come back as it sounds likely Wade has a player option for 24 million and Rondo is 3 million guaranteed out of his 13.4 million next year but they have to decide on that before free agency on June 30th and Garpax basically said they expect him to be back maybe the only way that he wouldn't be back is if Wade also opts out you know then they would just have enough space where it's like okay we can just rebuild or use flexibility or whatever uh 
So I think you definitely listen extremely hard with Butler around the draft. So now let's do the same thing we did with Paul George. Give me some fake Jimmy Butler trades. Of course, Boston is the number one team, but you can solicit offers from a wider range of teams now because he's under contract for two more years. And now like a team might say, yeah, even if we have no expectation, he's going to resign. These are the two best years of his career. We've got him for two years. We're willing to give up more, even if he's not going to stick around. Unlike Paul George, where you're only getting one year out of so I think Boston is still the most compelling suitor. He fits in well with them. And when, when we did this mock negotiation for Paul George, we ended the Boston part of it when I said I wasn't willing to give up a Nets pick. I'm not completely sold on it, but I do think I'd be willing to give one up for, for Jimmy Butler just because of the extra team control. And then the idea that they're not going to give him a, they won't be able, they won't be allowed to give him a designated veteran maximum after that. And at that point, they will have spent their cap space. So basically it's just ownership money on top of that yeah and the other thing too is that boston if they can make the right trades they could even just trade for butler after using all of their cap space on somebody else and so now you're adding you're able to add butler and you're able to add some guys in free agency hopefully even someone like gordon hayward which would be ridiculous probably not enough balls to go around frankly for thomas hayward and butler but or, you know, you can find just some effective players in free agency with basically almost max space. Uh, and you can load up pretty well. And I think also it'll just be interesting to see what happens to Cleveland. You know, they got to see how well they match up with Cleveland already. I suspect not well, or they might not. They might just lose game seven and not even make it, which would be a disaster against the Wizards. But either way, I mean, you're still because the situation with Thomas, like if Thomas and Bradley were under contract for like another year after this one, they were just on the same timeline as Butler. You'd say, all right, we're going to bring in Butler and you know use our free agency space and then we'll if we give up the 2018 brooklyn pick you know we got jalen brown we got whoever we drafted this year and so now we've got two years to contend and then we can try and rebuild around you know jalen brown and this brooklyn pick and then whoever from this year and then you know whoever else we we've gotten in free agency and just kind of stay good during that period but you're basically if you lose thomas and bradley having butler the year after that doesn't do you a ton of good at that point right because there's no way even that jalen brown and 2017 number one brooklyn pick are going to be ready along with jimmy butler to push you into an elite space unless you bring back thomas and bradley and then those are going to be really ugly contracts and be way into the tax can you do that probably not so those the idea of winning now it's probably less appealing than it would have been at last year's trade deadline because of the fact that now you only get one postseason that you're guaranteed to have Bradley Thomas and Jimmy Butler all together so that's probably going too far for for Boston we should save that for the Boston part but you know I still don't expect like a mega offer from Boston uh, for that reason let's just get through some of like the minutiae here though uh, on this team because yeah. it sounds like this whole cast of characters is probably going to come back but just if you want a quick run through like what some of their variables are here in their their cap situation so if they really cleared the decks so that would mean no no way but his is a player option rondo with a partial guarantee and then nikola miritich has a sizable cap hold because he is a restricted free agent but had a a higher salary dude because he wasn't he did sign on the rookie scale they could have up to 50 million in space however that does not seem particularly likely considering i believe we both think wade is going to opt in then they start to get closer to becoming even if especially if they're going to keep rondo to just becoming an over the cap team and using a trade exception they have and then using probably the not the non-taxpayer mid-level exception yeah and supposedly the plan as it always is in chicago is future flexibility and 
they could have 50 million in space in the summer of 2018 as well where the class maybe isn't as appealing but they also your dollar will probably go further as less teams will have space fewer teams will have space and so with that being the case rondo at 3.4 million can you do better with that than you could with 10 million because remember he's 3 million guaranteed over one year as another point guard option the way rondo played at the end of the year i mean i really don't expect him to repeat that but but at least he's got like some upside of maybe reaching that. He's going to be older again. He's going to be 32, but still uh, he's got some upside of maybe reaching that. And I don't see a better option. He's going to sign for a one year, $10 million deal than him. So, I mean, you might as well stick, keep him around if you keep Wade around and then, or if Wade keeps himself around. And then the question is what happens to Miritich, $10 million cap hold for him. And also Cristiano Felicio, who's an arenas free agent with two years of experience He's got an extremely small capital, only $200,000 over the minimum. What would your offer be if you're Chicago to Nikola Miritich, number one? And number two, what is the lowest offer that you would not match from another team? Miritich, 26 years old, by the way. So he's 26. I don't feel completely like locked in that he is a starting caliber power forward. He certainly could be. And I think that he is, you know, if your team is not going to be a title contender, I think you can make it work. We talked a little bit about the Ryan Anderson issues, I think on yesterday's show. And that Miritich is actually better defensively than Ryan. I would agree. I would agree with you. And so I would feel comfortable paying him something more in the $10 million year range. I also think you could trade that if you needed to, you know, if you really need to get out of that space. The most I would probably match would be a four-year deal, probably around 13. And then I would go a little bit higher if it was a shorter term, like maybe 14, starting at 14 for three years. Yeah. And Miritich certainly, you know, had promise once upon a time. He just hasn't made enough shots. I mean, that's been the biggest issue and then on a team where with rondo and wade they haven't had any shooting he's had to just stand out by the arc instead of being able to do some stuff off the dribble he did not have a particularly encouraging playoff run against boston he had like one good game in that series but the problem is, especially if they're keeping all these other guys around, you know, he's still the best of a bunch of bad power forward options. Like Bobby Portis to me is not ready. And we'll get to the whole issue of how none of these young guys have looked like they're ready for roles to where you can count on them if you're actually trying to be good next year. But yeah, I think that, that I agree with you there uh, on Miritich. Uh, what about Cristiano Felicio? I'd love to get him for true backup center money. Of course, now I, when I think true backup center money, I'm thinking about Myers Leonard, which is actually way too much. I, I don't think I would do that. Yeah, I'd, like I'd love seven to, million a year. Yeah, something like that's that. That's where I'm thinking. That's where I'm thinking. Seven eight would be would be good. And I could see somebody falling in love with Felicio, maybe in a way like what happened to Jan Mahinmi back when he was on Dallas, where Indiana's basically like, oh, we we could do something with him. Though the market for centers is now very different than it was then at whatever year that was. I think Felicio. Is not like the smartest player, but he's got great physical tools. He's an alley-oop threat. Uh, he's got some good mobility defensively, can protect the rim. And I think he's got some shooting potential that really has not been at all explored by this Bulls team. But man, I mean, that's a lot of money for him. And the most they can pay in the first year is the mid-level exception anyway, because he's arenas limited. That would be $8.4 million. But that's a, that's a lot of money for him. And I think the Bulls would probably just swallow hard and not match that. I mean, they do have Robin Lopez already. Um but I mean, I guess, I guess who's going to be your backup center then too? I guess they would have to go in the direction of Joffrey Laverne. And maybe that was part of the thought in bringing him over from Oklahoma City that he could be, you know, you're in a pinch backup. I happen to disagree with that. I'm well certain that you happen to disagree with that. Uh, he's a restricted free agent as well. Not Arenas Limited, just a normal restricted free agent. 
But yeah, I mean, if I were a team, I might even consider making offers to both Miritich and Felicia. We talked about that with the Nets and just hope to get, you know, they match Miritich. All right, great. Now we're going to turn around Felicio. And to be paying those two guys combined, you know, over $20 million a year potentially. I, I for the record, I don't think Felice, I don't think people realize what's going on with Felicio. I don't think he's going to get as much as we're talking about here. Because uh, you're, kind of, I mean, you're paying for upside there, but he just hasn't shown that much yet. Does Chicago really want to eat into their precious 2018 cap space with 30 million bucks for those two guys who, you know, might not even be starters? They, maybe Chicago just bites the bullet and says, all right, we're going to let these dudes walk. And yeah, all right, we take a step back in 2017-18, fine. And maybe they even tell Dwayne Wade, hey, you know what? Like, this is our plan. We may not match on these guys. We're going for 2018. Uh, maybe you might want to decline that player option. I'm, uh, I'm smiling because my most off-the-wall idea, which did not make it in my Sports Illustrated preview, partially because I, I didn't want to scare them a little bit, is the idea <laughs> of using the Jimmy Butler, announcing a Jimmy Butler trade if the right thing comes along on draft night, partially to try to get Wade to decline his option. Because basically yeah, saying, well, hey, once, we're going yeah. to suck. We're going to suck. Why? why you want to stay yeah well once they've once that's happened wade probably may not want to stay, but he's unlikely to get at least on a per year basis anywhere close to 24 million but i could see him getting more in guaranteed money over a longer term deal if you wanted to go elsewhere but the question is you know who really needs that kind of a shot creator at this point unless he wants to go to like somewhere that's even crappier than the bulls and you know isn't miami or chicago which is where he's from so that, that obviously had an appeal so I, I do think he probably ends up opting in let's just run through just a few more housekeeping things anthony morrow is a free agent hard to imagine him necessarily coming back isaiah cannon has a non-guarantee for the minimum on which they have to decide by june 30th and he still has two hundred thousand guaranteed for next year so they'll probably keep him around i would imagine and uh you know they could always just try and trade him away if they really need that but he's, he's pretty close to the minimum so uh not really that big of an issue there in terms of cap space especially if you know they're not really going to be using cap space so they could re-sign miritich and then they probably would have enough room to use the full mid-level exception but again you know do they want to eat into 2018 space to do that with hard to say what else do they have in terms of housekeeping stuff michael carter williams michael we'll carter get. williams is a restricted free agent yeah. has a, a, a semi-sizable cap hold i think it's around eight million but i mean that's gonna be, maybe the idea with him is that you try to that you you keep him on the books early on just to see if the market is so tepid that he'll sign his qualifying offer so you just get him for like four million that might be a possibility i don't know if they even would want to do that i i might even i mean i don't I don't think he would take the qualifying offer because he just he's going to want to go somewhere else where he can play. Uh, and I think he could still have some modicum of success. Oh, the the certainly the evidence for that is winning. But, you know, he's got to be in a system where he's got a lot of shooting around him. He can maybe play as a second unit point guard, kind of tailor his game after like the way Sean Livingston has played, like get into the post against smaller backup point guards with some shooting around him and obviously Chicago does not really offer that option do you think that any of Bobby Portis Cameron Payne Jerry and Grant Paul Zipser or Denzel Valentine can become like a quality part of an eight-man rotation or should they just be looking to replace like all those guys in theory at least for you know on one-year rentals or something 
I have the most hope for Zipser, actually. I think As do I. I think Zipser could be a part of part of an eight-man rotation. I don't know how high in the eight he could get, but I think he could be in the, the sixth rate part of that. All the other guys, it, it really is a lottery ticket at this point. And part of the problem with them is that's so many roster spots to use on guys that you don't have much confidence are going to be starters. Yeah, and so many resources that they've put into those guys as well. I mean, ironically, Zipser, who both of us have the most confidence in, has like the worst draft pedigree of any of those dudes uh and portis i mean i think he could be a quality offensive player but he just cannot defend and i just don't think he has the foot speed or or the defensive intelligence level to be quality anytime soon if ever and valentine he can hit a wide open spot up shot but you know hasn't shown the ability to do anything else he was derailed by some ankle injuries grant had a few moments shot it better from three-point range than would have been expected but he absolutely wilted in the playoffs that's probably his failure in the playoffs actually is probably shining too harsh a light on him because i think he, he looked like he could be a decent backup at least during the course of the season but he's already like he's gonna be 25 next year so it's not like he's got much potential to bloom yeah as you said that's just a lot of roster spots and then Payne, of course has been a complete disaster it's just a lot of roster spots for guys who you know i don't think you can reasonably expect them to become quality members of the rotation this season except for maybe zipser there's one other glorious piece of housekeeping to do and that is as you know my baby is pick protection there is an outside 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 shot that they still get the Kings pick, but I'm. It might actually be mathematically impossible. I don't know how the salaries are because, or how the how the odds are done. Because Sacramento is eighth, which means that three teams below eight would have to fill all three of the top spots. Then they would fall to eleven, and they would give their pick to Chicago. And that'll be it for that pick. Now it just becomes the Kings second rounder ending one of the most glorious episodes, perhaps the most glorious episode of successful quote unquote pick protection in nba history by the sacramento kings really quickly here because we're running short on time at 2 43 a.m on a friday night they've got the number 16 pick they do not have their 2018 and 2019 seconds what do you see as their main team needs at this point i think you just go straight best player available because they're they don't have anything there that you can really say is like their their totem their anchor point especially if jimmy butler is not definitely on their team long term so i would say anything a veteran for i mean especially when you consider you know miritich felicio like if we're not going to assume that those guys are part of the team they definitely need uh some or laverne even as a free agent too you know they need a backup five they need a four who can shoot a little and defend and that's probably a guy who's out of their price range if they're just looking at the mid-level especially if they're not willing to give a long-term contract a point guard who can actually shoot the ball other than isaiah cannon who hilariously ended up starting and playing huge minutes after being totally out of the rotation in the playoffs so I think realistically where they should be looking is kind of veteran four who can start in a pinch like Ursan Ilyasova I think would be an excellent fit there though there could be some competition for his services uh, Jonas Drebko who's fallen out of the rotation in Boston could be a guy who would be an okay fit next to uh, the rebounding box out ability and rim protection of Robin Lopez uh, Mike Muscala maybe if they lose Felicio and the guys I'd be scared to see them go after I don't Tyler Zeller just seems like such a Bulls guy uh, you know four-year player at North Carolina like white dude runs the floor like I could totally see them like picking him up as just like their main backup center and then just being like soft as hell um, can we include trading for George Niang <laughs> um and i also it's like someone like pj tucker or tabo cephalosha like just other guys who are like not great shooters who are just veterans to try and like 
I mean, unless they could just get those guys for one year, which they won't, it doesn't really seem worth it because as we established, I mean, they're not really, there just doesn't seem to be a plan here. So I, I mean, I think my plan would be try to trade Butler for whatever I could get for him right now because you're wasting these next two years of his career anyway I don't see any way that you improve enough maybe if Wade and Rondo both leave and you get you know 50 million in space but that's just not going to happen most likely so I would just move Butler because you're not really giving much up here of these next two years then you're going to lose him or give him an awful contract and still not be any good so you might as well just get something while you can for him and this isn't a case again of even a team like Toronto or the Clippers, granted, those guys, they have free agents who they got to pay a lot of money to. But it's kind of the same thing here where you have this asset that is just not doing you any good. So if you want to actually be good again someday, you might as well get something out of that asset other than 40 wins the next two years. And they have to be realistic with where they are right now, because if they overpay for Felicio and or Miritich because it's like, oh, well, we need them to be relevant. It'll be hard to get off that money if those guys get too much. And I'm not sure they will. But if they do, at least they're young enough to improve but there's a chance that they might not you know i mean they're kind of paying them more for potential than what their production has been except you know in small spurts here Let's get to OKC now, but first this from Betterment. You can learn more about them at betterment.com slash capspace. They are the largest independent automated investing service out there, making it easier, more straightforward, and less expensive to invest. They have a lot of interesting tools like the tax impact preview which will tell you what will happen if you make certain moves in your portfolio from a tax perspective. They've got Smart Deposit. If you are someone with an unsteady income, it can be hard to save. So Smart Deposit can just take any amount of money above whatever threshold you want to set in your checking account and just invest it for you automatically. So if you have a month where you're flush, it'll just invest it for you automatically. Betterment brings you all this at a lower cost than more traditional financial services because it's automated. And more than 150,000 customers choose Betterment's advanced advice algorithms and beautiful user interface to manage over four billion of their dollars once again the way to get started with them is betterment.com slash cap space where dunktown listeners can get up to six months of no fees once again that's betterment.com slash cap space betterment investing made better OKC, not very sexy here. I'll give you the quick summary. They already are at $20 million over the cap because they extended Steven Adams and Victor Oladipo. They, of course, signed Ennis Cantor to a big new contract. And that is without Taj Gibson's cap hold and with Robertson's cap hold as well at only $5.5 million. He's surely going to get a raise there so they're actually already eight hundred thirty thousand dollars over the tax before considering re-signing robertson which you have to imagine would take at least 10 million per season and so then they're looking at you know a historically tax averse ownership group they did pay it uh in 2015-16 but that was for a team that it was a contender and was worried about losing kevin durant so it's hard for me to imagine that Taj Gibson will return. And I know you had Royce Young on your podcast just recently to talk about the Thunder. And he basically said Taj Gibson, he expects him to go for essentially the highest bidder. And remember that Taj is 32 and has never really gotten that big money contract. So now is the time he got into the NBA. He got into the NBA at an older age. So that is, you know, that's a part of it. And, you know, they are going to have to 
replace him, assuming he leaves. And one challenge for Oklahoma City, and I'll get into why I think there actually is a very interesting offseason in a, in a second. There are two things that I think are reasons. But really, the guy who I think is the linchpin for figuring out what's going to go on with them outside of the ones that I'm going to bring up later is Ennis Canner, because that is the easiest way for them to make their books work. They won't have a backup center on the roster, though, at that point, if they lose him, unless you're going to just play Sabonis at backup center. I mean, because they're going to, if we assume they're going to lose Gibson. True, but at that point, they can use their full mid-level exception, probably. And yeah. maybe they could even still have open, depending on if they could, what they get back for Canner. They might even have, they still have, I believe, a trade exception for Arison Eliasova. They could even use some of that, too. Uh, they used most of that to acquire Gibson. Right. I think they still have like about so, 5 million left on it. Yeah, I think it might even be less than that. But uh, in any event, yeah, I, I think it's... It's going to be difficult to move Cantor, as as we've been saying. You wrote a piece about it. The center market is kind of weak. Cantor is owed... 18 million this year and as a player option for almost 19 million next year which you know tough to know whether he's going to take that or not he's still pretty young Uh, i think he'll only be like 25 26 by the time he goes into free agency again remember he got that offer sheet with portland that they ended up matching so that's why he's going to be a free agent again but that player option might actually end up being a good thing for for okc if they can get him out of that contract and it was again very frustrating for a team that would like to try to get back to the 50 win level and actually compete in the playoffs that I mean, against a lot of their rivals Cantor is just unplayable you know and they had to just you know we've been calling him can't play him because that's what Billy Donovan said after he was just getting completely destroyed in pick and roll against Houston in that series right and that's a, a challenge moving forward because if you can't play a guy at all in the playoff series then giving him basically starter money and committing to that unless you're giving up something in something that is maybe not a toxic asset but just a mitigation for that whole cost that might be a way to make it work where it's like you know something that's a little bit better and then like seven million of filler that might be a way to make this work yeah that's a good point maybe you take back uh something that's a, a worse asset there uh but you know like in Corey terms Brewer, of like if he was on a different playing, team. yeah yeah exactly yeah so you're just that makes perfect sense so Robertson, I mean, I'm thinking he's going to get like 12 million a year. Does that seem reasonable to you? Maybe a little yeah, less. I, I think it'll be about that range. The problem with Robertson is all it takes is one, maybe two teams to really be high on him. And if if going a little bit higher, going to like, let's say 14 or 15, makes it less likely for Oklahoma City to match, maybe like the, that one team just pushes up just to make them uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a possibility as well. And I mean, do you think they have to match on him? Is there any way they let him go? I think so. There is there's a possibility there. I mean, they already have their their backcourt lined up. Maybe they really like Doug McDermott. We didn't get to see that much of him, but he, Doug McDermott's a player that they can integrate better with a full off season. And Robertson, if they're thinking this is a Russell Westbrook team, if he you know, and and that gets into what I want to talk about at that point, Robertson starts losing some value just because it's so much non shooting on the floor, and he brings value defensively. He's a wonderful player, but he fit in, and this is a point that Royce made when we talked on Real Jam Radio, Robertson fits so much better with Westbrook and Durant than with just Westbrook. No, that that is a good point. And obviously James Harden didn't guard him at all. It was it was a problem. He did a pretty nice job on Harden, not an amazing one, but certainly is is solid against him. He's he's probably a top five wing defender in the league. He's he's very talented 
also adds a lot in help defense i think it's just he's so much better if when he can play the four on offense though and be a screener and try to get on the offensive glass it's just hard for me to see them just not matching on him uh, but they do of course have some structural issues because you know hey they've got a ton of these one-way players uh playing the three and, and the four even and if they let gibson go now you're going back to sabonis who i still don't think is close to ready to be like really a, a starter on a good team like him starting all year before they got gibson was kind of a gift jeremy grant again very limited offensively and maybe now is a good time to discuss the quandary of uh his hinky special contract right so this is one of the two reasons i think oklahoma city's offseason is interesting so grant has three years of nba experience right now and then he has a team option for next year so what that means is oklahoma city has this choice they can either pick up his basically minimum salary team option for next year and then he will be an unrestricted free agent or they can a la houston with chandler parsons decline that team option and make him a restricted free agent this summer yeah this is the chandler parsons decision basically that houston had to make although obviously parsons was in a much greater position to cash in than grant my prediction is that due to their tax concerns they will just pick up that option and have him under contract for the minimum again this year and just you know deal with potentially resign um they could also actually look to extend him as well uh the most that they could give him would be basically a four-year 39 million dollar deal if they extended him so that's something that they could look at they can go up to 20 percent of the mle as a, or 120 percent of the mle as a starting salary so you know 120 percent at 8.4 million essentially so that's something that they might look to do as well i think i i would say they just pick up the option and then try to get him at an extension at some point before he actually goes into free agency next year and then they'll have a much bigger idea i mean the other thing about this offseason is they're going to offer russell westbrook the designated veteran extension presumably he will take that but if he does not take that then it's like oh shit and that's the other reason why i'm really intrigued by their offseason because unlike james harden who when he extended just because of the nature of his contract he has two more years you know he has more time locked in westbrook could be a free agent next summer so if he declines that not only is he choosing like the the prospect of free agency but he's also saying i don't want that ridiculous amount of money that you can get with a designated veteran extension so to me if he does that then the clock to start trading him starts immediately yeah you're right back where you were last summer before he signed this little renegotiate and extend with all their their issues though with the tax i mean it's really hard to see them adding much to this team uh i mean best case scenario probably they're going for the mini mid-level starting at five million a year they may stretch kyle singler as well they could knock him down from uh almost five million a year to about 1.8 million per year over the next five years instead of five million for the next two uh that disastrous contract that was signed that i didn't actually think was that bad in the summer of 2015 but singler just immediately forgot how to play cats meowing at uh how miserable singler's contract was and i mean do you agree with me that they should clearly just be trying to be as good as they possibly can next year like that's the plan here with when you have russell westbrook in his prime and just i mean like there's there's not that much to me separating this team from being a 50 win type of team if they could just get better when westbrook is on the bench and to do that they got to either play oladipo at the backup one or get a real backup one because samaj Kristen is not the answer right and they if they lose taj gibson 
Gibson, they really have two huge needs because they also need to figure out what they're doing at power forward. So they would have a yeah. limited amount of resources. They have the, I think it's the 21st pick in the draft, which is you're probably not going to get an immediate contributor there. And they also can't trade any picks in the near, first round picks in the near future because they owe first round picks to Utah and Philly in future years. Yeah, from the Cantor and Grant trades. And the sort of steady backup point guard market is not too great. Uh, right now i mean maybe like a sergio rodriguez type would be someone that they could look at uh you know raymond felton ty lawson but again you know if they're if all they got to offer is five million you might not even get some of the best guys there but just having another decent veteran option they could just bring back Ronnie price oh my god uh like shelvin mack i think would be an excellent fit as well you know just a steady guy who's not going to screw up too badly can switch a little bit defensively hit an open shot you know that's the type of player i think they should be looking for if michael carter williams gets his qualifying offer decline and they sign him i'm just gonna go crazy yeah it was funny to see like the two like worst shooting teams in the league although like the, th- the thing about the thunder now is like with abrinas and, and oladipo is a fine shooter for his position abrinas doug mcdermott like they've got enough shooting they just have to like play those guys and, and it's difficult to play abrinas and, and mcdermott together but i mean maybe you just have units out there where you're just like i'd like to see them try more of this we're like all right screw it we're not not going to stop anybody we're going with russell westbrook and ennis Cantor, and then we're going to put a brinus and mcdermott around them and oladipo and like you know what we're just going to outscore you i would love to see that approach from okc which we never have really but and it doesn't really seem to be in their dna but i sure would like to see russell westbrook try to pilot that kind of an offense which would basically be like an even worse defending Houston, but might actually be even harder to stop than Houston, frankly, because you've got a good post-up option against switches and Cantor and a great like role man finisher in Cantor as well. It's certainly worth considering. And as much as we talked about how the point guard market is going to be challenging, I think the power forward one for specifically what they're looking for could be really hard too, because you want a guy who can stretch the floor if you're playing Steven Adams or Ennis Cantor. I mean, Cantor can shoot a little bit, but you're not thinking about that as, as a headliner. And guys who can do that and are are switchable or something like that are going to cost a lot more money than the thunder have to offer yeah i think like a mike scott uh mike beasley could be guys that that they might want to look into a little bit actually if like boris yaw gets cut by the jazz he would be a great fit there i don't see boris willingly going to oklahoma city necessarily uh but yeah i mean most of the other guys jarebko would be another guy i think actually would be a pretty good fit there as well might be potentially in their price range since he's been out of boston's rotation and but what he could be kind of done too yeah that would actually he would be a good one too i think just a, another combo forward who can just shoot a little bit like uh, just give them a little bit more spacing because i just i mean they're gonna start savonis next year i assume and i think it's just gonna not work uh, again i think he's just re- like has not shown me enough maybe he'll improve just so much and actually like get rid of the zoolander i doubt it and you know defensively he's like better than expected but still not great uh and his shooting is you know he shot well early on a very small number of attempts and then dropped off and had a stretch where he was shooting like you know 20 percent from three or less than that and he also is not really like a very versatile three-point shooter yeah so backup point guard and power forward are looking real ugly for them again and grant i think would be fine in a lot of circumstances but then you've also are going to be playing robertson and you can't play those guys together and hope to score at all especially if you're also going to throw out steven adams as well so it could be just be very similar uh, to last year with this team the other way of doing this is playing mcdermott and robertson at the three and the four yeah 
But McDermott, uh, he's inadequate. He can't be a, a stretch four defensively. Well, the idea is that Robertson guards the better guy, whoever that is. Yeah. But I like but Robertson just, better as a 2-3, personally, defender. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right. But it's just, yeah, it, it would be. And, and then, yeah, maybe if the guy's like a two-guard, Oladipo could just guard him. You know, maybe that's the thought. I don't know. When you have one-way players, it's a very hard jigsaw puzzle. And uh, as they always have, the Thunder quite specialize in that. All right. Anything else you wanted to say about these guys? They are going to have rookie extension negotiations, perhaps, for Doug McDermott. I think it's very unlikely that they would come to uh, any kind of an agreement. But maybe enough will stabilize that they can kind of think about that. But I think they really want to see more of him in their system and i don't see mcdermott uh, agreeing to you know anything under like 10 million a year i don't see the thunder being one to pay that so uh i think it's very unlikely you know they might pay it eventually if he has a great year but at this point in time you know kind of being in and out of their rotation since he arrived i highly doubt it no i think it's late enough i think we've gone through what we need to <laughs> all right sounds good don't forget about our sponsors today betterment betterment.com slash catsface get up to six months of no fees and harry's harrys.com slash capspace you can claim your free trial offer just cover the shipping it's a 13 dollars value for free there we will return no twitter nba show on sunday that'll come back on monday for game seven of boston and washington though and uh we'll be back to talk about game one of san antonio and golden state as well as some more off-season preview action on sunday thanks for listening talk to you all then at Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.